what we are running from is shame. Really, is what it is. <laughs> you know, it's, yes. it's about, you know, I don't expect people to walk around like being able to pinpoint all of these like possible shame storms. But it is really, if, if you don't know what your triggers are and if you don't know, if you aren't aware of that, then you are letting shame in the driver's seat of your life. Okay. Hi, folks, and welcome to the Undo Anxiety Podcast. This is Dr. John Duffy. I am your host for today's proceedings. And uh, as always, I so appreciate you protecting some time for myself and my guests. Um, joining me today is Andrea Owen. Um, Andrea, welcome. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I'm so glad you are here. Andrea is an esteemed life coach and author of a book, the title of which I am already in love with, How to Stop Feeling Like Shit, 14 Habits That Are Holding You Back from Happiness. Um, first, The first question I have is, how did you come up with the title? And you know, how did you decide to go all the way in on how to stop feeling like shit? <laughs> it, it's kind of a funny story. So I wrote another book that came out in 2014. And so my agent had been asking me every, I don't know, six months or so if I had any ideas for a second book. And I, and I didn't. And I went and in 2014, I, I got my life coach training back in 2009, I think it was. But in 2014, I went and was trained by the wonderful Dr. Brene Brown and her senior faculty. And oh. for those people that don't know her, she's a researcher who has dedicated her professional life to studying shame and connection and authenticity. So I was, I was certified in her work and what she calls the armor, which she describes them as these things that we do that try to, that we do to try to protect us from shame and criticism and judgment and failure, et cetera. And she describes just a a few of them uh, mm -hmm. from her research. And I loved that. And it really resonated with my clients. And what I discovered, though, through the years of doing her work and just coaching and mentoring women in general were that and, and I do work with women, I want to say, but these are behaviors that are across the board that are <laughs> not gender specific. I was wondering about that. So so you're right. I, I noticed your work was with women. And yet, as I read about your work, I was thinking, boy, a lot of these themes have got to be universal. So much. Yeah. yeah. So many of those, you know, the, there are some nuances that I think are gender specific and, and the examples that I give are mostly for women. But I think that the majority of the behaviors that I talk about are for both genders. And so they are, you know, you can read the table of contents, but it was it, the most common ones that I find are isolating and hiding out negative self-talk, numbing out, mm. uh, control, um, let's see what else are the most common. They're all so common for my people. It's overachieving as well. People pleasing and approval seeking. And when I would talk about these behaviors, I would say, you know, we think that these things are making us better and we think that they're protecting them, but actually they're making us feel like shit. And so when I was, huh. I gave my, my agent, the idea of the book. And I said, I want the title of the book to be called how to stop feeling like shit. And he laughed out loud and I wasn't sure if he was laughing because <laughs> I'm like, is that a, that'll never happen laugh. Right, right. Like, and he's like, I love it. So we had a couple of publishers actually that rejected it because of the title and it just wasn't a good fit, but we found one that did. And so, and here we are. Yes. Um, and it, what, what's interesting to hear you talk about kind of the, the armor, that false protection that Brene Brown talks about, um, oftentimes some of the things that you mentioned are things we think are going to work, right? Like I'm thinking about overachieving, even numbing out, things like that. 
Um, I think somewhere in the back of our, our monkey mind, right, that, that's racing and anxious, we think like, mm, maybe, maybe this is going to work for me. Maybe I can hold on to this um, as my armor and I'll be fine. Or maybe this is the right path for me. A lot of times they do work for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. <laughs> Overachieving for me worked. You know, I graduated from college with honors and and shined and people validated me and, and I felt like loved me for it. And mm-hmm. people that control, you know, if you're at work and you work with somebody who kind of struggles with control, you probably want them on your team because they're pretty productive. You yeah, know? right. Like, no kidding. Efficient. <laughs> and and yeah, and, and isolating and hiding out and all of and numbing. You know, I'm I'm I identify as an addict and I've been sober since 2011 and I, that worked for a while, pushing everything away and and allowing me to kind of soldier on, if you will. And there's a saying actually in recovery that says it works until it doesn't. And the people that I help have gotten to that place. I think you, you get to a place in your life where the pain of continuing down the path of using those behaviors is more than the pain of trying something else. Hmm. Yeah. That's better solutions is what right, I like to right. say. Yeah. Very profound. Um, and is that your sobriety story in a way? Like, you know, what was there something about, you know, I, there, there's addiction in my family. Um, and, mm-hmm. and I think my brother, my father at some point in their life would have said, this is working perfectly fine. Why are you on, yeah. why are you on me? Why are you up my ass about this? Yeah. Stop talking about it. Right. 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 Um, do, 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 <laughs> even, even like addiction, do you think like, well, sometimes we fall into that because it, it, we're able to escape some of our, our feelings and our realities through this. Yeah. And I think you just named it. I, for me and my experience, I was emotionally illiterate. I didn't know how to, I grew up in a very loving family yeah. and we didn't have words to put around hard conversations and struggles within the family. If, if you were in struggle, you went in your room and you dealt with it by yourself and come out when you're better and then we'll give you a hug and, you know, and feed you. Right. Um, but don't it, talk it was, about it out here. Right, right. <laughs> we don't want to see it. We don't. We don't want to talk about it. And and my parents, it's not at all to blame and shame. My parents, they did the best that they could. Self help was not readily available to their parents or to mine back in when I grew up in the seventies and eighties. And and I think that now we are reaching a point where it is. It's not as taboo to be in personal development and to talk about your feelings and have tools around them. And I think especially even more so for men where I think it's, it's very different and to be actually vulnerable and and share with someone you trust. And I, I just, that's the reason I was an addict. I was a love addict in my twenties. I was severely codependent. And it was because the way I describe it is my codependence and love addiction back then looked like this love and intimacy and connection were the things I wanted the most, but they were equally the things I was the most terrified of. I wanted people in my life, but I wanted to keep you at an arm's distance. I wanted to be in control of all of it. It was too risky for anything else. And then I got help from that in my early 30s. And then that's when my drinking picked up because I still, I liked, I think I liked the idea of recovery. (laughs) And I did a lot of things that my symptoms stopped basically is, is what it was. But then I still didn't fully step into feeling my feelings of grief and anger and, and hurt and heartbreak and all these old family of origin stuff that I had never truly looked at and shine the light on. Mm -hmm. That's when my drinking picked up because I could not bear it. I could, uh, I also couldn't bear other people's feelings. I didn't, um, I didn't have a whole lot of compassion for other people. I thought they needed to just 
just, you know, Shake do better. Off. Just deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. And and your and and your story is even richer than that. I mean, you, you say you were a love addict, and yet this didn't always work out well in your life, right? I mean, you know, like there were a couple times where where you were burned in this regard. <laughs> That's putting it mildly. <laughs> like I'm trying to use my way here, Andrea. <laughs> yeah. So I was in a relationship for almost 14 years. We started dating when I was 17. We were both teenagers, and we ended up getting married about 11 years later. And it, you know, looking back on it, it was a very, neither of us had skills and, and knew a healthy way of communicating. So it was a tumultuous relationship. We had very high highs and very low lows. And when we were discussing things actually kind of calmed down a little bit after we got married and we were doing what I thought was, was pretty well from our standards. And we were discussing having our first child as most people many people do at that age and been together that long. And he had an affair with our neighbor and got her pregnant and left me for her. So he divorced me and it was devastating for many reasons, mostly because I was losing his family. This was a family that had brought me in. They were a big family. He was the um, middle child of, of five siblings and they were my family. They were absolutely hundred percent my family. And I loved his parents as if they were my own. And that was devastating to, to be sort of like pushed out. And from a biological level, like, let's face it, there was, we have biological things that happen in our brain to where we are part of a community and that's where we feel safe. And when we are pushed out of that, it's trauma. So I was dealing with that. And again, in retrospect, slipped into a depression and I did what no one should do is I started dating online. Right. (laughs) met someone whom I thought was Mr. Wright. Uh-huh. And he was, he told me he had non-Hodgkin lymphoma and it was awful. And he was sick throughout our, our about nine or 10 months of dating and lost a lot of weight. And I was, I was basically supporting him financially. He had quit his job. And so fast mm-hmm. forward, he actually never had cancer. He had lied about it to cover up his opioid addiction. Oh my God. And I found out I had, you know, I had been conned out of thousands of dollars. We were going to move away and live happily ever after. So I had got out of the lease of my apartment. I had quit my job that I loved and I was pregnant. I got pregnant and then he went away to rehab and met someone in rehab that he fell in love with. And then we never spoke again. Oh my so, <laughs> yeah. so my 10 year old son is, mm-hmm. um, the product of that. And I'm, I'm married now and my husband has adopted him and we have another child together. And But yeah, that was my bottom. My bottom was holding that pregnancy test and thinking, I have got to change my life. Like, this is not working anymore. How did I get here? Yeah. That's when everything started for me. And and, and just to hear the arc of your story, what what a very difficult story. In a a way, there's this uh, stark contrast, but just between that the um, energy and the life in your voice and the story you're telling. Um, and just thinking about the arc of it, like, you know, the, you're part of this community. And I think sometimes when a relationship ends, the things you miss aren't what you expect to miss. Like I, I could, because I've worked with most more women than men um, in the past 20 years who have said exactly what you said. Like, you know, I don't know if I miss that relationship as much as I miss the relationships that, you know, were around it, you know, that being part of that family and that community. And you're so right. And then, and then to be part of this other um, relationship that feels like there's kind of a dearth of community 
and you know, and he's living this lie. Um, I can't imagine what it was like for you to try to trust another man or person again. Oh, it's been a rough road. Like, let's be honest. <laughs> Past you, <laughs> like but, right, of course. <laughs> Lots of marriage counseling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll bet, I'll bet. Um, and yet, somehow, you um, have clearly risen above a lot of this because, I, if I understand it right, you are, you are, as you said, the mother of two, right? And you're a triathlete. Mm-hmm. You've been a roller derby player. You are a mm-hmm. life coach. How did this happen? You know, how did you rise from these ashes? Because I think a lot of us, given the story, if it ended right where you're talking about, you know, I think maybe you just kind of like, um, uh, you know, tighten everything up and, you know, get yourself an apartment and a job and and hunker down, you know, right. <laughs> for the remainder of your days. Somehow mm-hmm. you decided, nope, I'm, I'm going to get sober and I'm going to figure this all out and help other people through it. Um, <clears throat> where, where did you go from that moment? It was, it was really honestly a on the bedroom floor Mm. in the fetal position. I know this happens to a lot of people in the bathroom. That's usually the story, but for me, it was my bedroom. (laughs) It was, I had moved a lot of the stuff out again because I was moving and it was the day I found out that I think I was probably only like 10 weeks pregnant at that point. And Mm. I had hacked into my boyfriend's email Mm. and Found, that's when I found out that he was in a relationship with this woman while he was away in rehab. Oh my God. And I can't imagine what that I, was like. um, And I had just left there. Wow. <laughs> I was at family week there. And, and anyway, so I found that and was in a heap on the floor thinking like, how did the, I let this happen again? How, how am I here? I can't believe this is happening. You know, just sobbing and sobbing and sobbing and like hysterical really. And it was, I had a moment of clarity and I decided, I know that this is not where I was meant to be. This is not Andrea. This is not like what happened to the girl whom everybody called magnetic and full of energy. Mm -hmm. And I had lost myself. Essentially, I had totally lost myself and I wanted her back better than ever and I started with gratitude. So this was right around, this was in 2007, early 2007, right when the movie The Secret had come out. Oh, I know yeah. it was a book before that. And mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't buy into all of the law of attraction, but basically gratitude, it was something that I hadn't ever really dove into. And so I started there and I drew a picture of what I wanted. I can't remember if it was on that same day or not, but it was within those few days. I drew a picture of what I wanted. I still have it because I didn't have any magazines to make like a vision board. So I drew what I wanted. I wrote down 10 things I was grateful for. And I, I, I honestly was like, that's ridiculous. I have nothing to be grateful for. Like, do you know what my life looks like? Right. But I did. I had 10 things I was grateful for. So it's just a glimmer. And honestly, it was a moment where I, I had to admit, I had to tell the truth with a capital T. Mm-hmm. I was the common denominator in all of the situations that happened. Not to put all the blame on me, like the guys that I had been with had done some pretty crappy things to me, mm-hmm. but I had tolerated this. I had ignored my intuition that told me on the first date to not keep dating the guy who conned me, who told me not to marry my first husband. Like I had convinced myself, it's amazing how we justify <laughs> ignoring our intuition. Right. I was a master at it. So I had to take responsibility for that. That is amazing. I mean, j- just, just to, in that moment, muster the energy and the positivity to say, I'm going to write down what, what I'm grateful for and think about what I'm accountable to. I mean, I can almost not fathom 
<laughs> kind of finding that um, strength and clarity in a moment like that. Do, do you think we're all capable of that? You know, in our, I do. In our toughest I moment? That, yeah, I think that we all have different tolerance levels of suffering. And I think, I mean, I, I, I remember I was watching an episode of Sex in the City where the, um, Carrie, the character, is do- finally done with Mr. Big, even though she ends up marrying him later. But right. there's a moment where she's like standing on the sidewalk and they're fighting and he's going to take her on this vacation. And she says no. And I remember watching that episode thinking, how do you do that? Like, how <laughs> does a woman have the courage to say no to a man that she has so much emotional investment in. Like, I didn't know what that was like. So I knew it existed. I just, I wanted to be like that. And I, and I didn't know how that was. I think that I had a very high tolerance for <laughs> suffering. And yeah, I you clearly did, that. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and is that a good thing? Like, are, in retrospect, are you glad you had that? Does that inform who you are today, the work you do today, the relationships you're in today? Yeah, I, I do. I think that, you know, it's funny. And this was back like right when I got married. So this was like the early 2000s. I, yeah. th- I, that's when I discovered what life coaching was. And it was like, there were very, very few life coaches out there that had web- websites. And right. I was telling my then husband, this is what I want to do. You know, this seems so neat. I think I would be really good at that. But I think, I think you probably would need, it would be better if someone had like a lot of great life experience in order to be a good life coach. And then I didn't think anything of it. Well, you know, be careful what you wish for. And then there I was three years later, <laughs> lying on the bedroom floor <laughs> with right. my life experience handed to me. But I am glad to answer your question. I am glad it happened to me. I actually thanked my husband in the acknowledgments of my very first book because he lit the fuse for me. I would, you know, if he would have turned around and said, I'm sorry, I got this other woman pregnant. It was a huge mistake. Can we work it out? I probably would have said, okay. Oh. And I mean, I, I wanted to be a mom at the time. I, I was so invested so many years. The thought of starting over was more painful than the pain of forgiving him for that. So I'm, I'm so, I think the universe intervened. I think the universe said, if you're not going to leave him, we've been telling you to leave him for all these years here. <laughs> right, right, right. How interesting. So when I think about the secret and the law of attraction, I can remember a moment in the movie um, where a woman is looking through a jewelry store window at a necklace, and then the necklace is kind of appears on her around her neck. Um, and so the the idea, I think, being you know, I, and, and and I think that's a little uh, the idea that there's no work between those two points um, kind of bothered me a little bit. Oh yeah. Um, but but you're suggesting even that like. Part of part of the law of attraction might be the negative experiences you attract that bring the authentic you out. Yeah, I think that I was I was matching the energy of the men that I was attracting based on what I was going through. I don't necessarily, I'm not totally convinced that this happens to every single person, nor do I think people who, I just want to clarify, I don't yeah. think people who are abused or anything like that, I don't think that you attract in your life, I don't. But for me, <laughs> I was very much in a victim mentality. Yeah. I was not taking responsibility for my life. I, everything was everybody else's fault. But then again, I tried to control everything. I attracted that back to me. And also in that second relationship, I was very vulnerable. And I I do think that that particular person was looking for someone like me and I was an easy target and I slipped right into it. I, mm-hmm. I didn't know how to cope with life. I didn't I didn't know how to do any of that. 
How did you, uh, this might be a wildly unfair question to ask. How did you learn? How did you learn how to cope with life in, in the wake of that? Oh, it's not at all an unfair question. I, one of the major things that I did was that I quit drinking and I, I don't think, you know, for anyone listening, I don't think that you have to quit drinking. I, hmm. I personally had a drinking problem right. and I am, I identify as being an addict. I never went down the, the, um, the chasm of, of drugs. Thank goodness. Did smoke a lot of pot in my earlier days, but uh-huh. drinking was, you know, after I, I quote unquote cured myself from my not myself, but it was with a lot of help, eating disorder and codependency and love addiction. That's when my drinking really picked up. And then in 2011, when my two children were very small, I knew what was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad got sober when I was 18. I knew exactly what a high bottom alcoholic looked like. And I knew <laughs> that I was one. So I knew I had a choice. Either I could quit drinking now, or I could see what happened and keep drinking and knew that things would quickly fall apart. I knew it was going to be a pretty quick progression for me. So I quit. And that was really when I decided, um, okay, now I really need to do the work. And part of that was to stop running away from my feelings. Mm -hmm. I hadn't even dealt with the grief of losing my family, my, my ex-husband's family that kind of exploded in my face when I got sober. And what it really, I mean, to answer the question, I think a little more clearly, it was learning how to trust myself more specifically trust that if I open up Pandora's box, AKA my feelings, that I was going to be okay walking through it. Because before I did not trust that at all. Mm -hmm. I, my belief was if I, if I open this up and shine a light on this pain, I might never stop crying. I also stereotypically, you know, as women, many of us have these core beliefs that, and I know the core beliefs are different for men, but, but for women, it's, we are stereotyped as being hysterical. If we do actually um, let go and cry our head off, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, I didn't want to be seen as that. I also really wore the badge of honor of being strong. I write about that in the book. And I think for many people that is, you were praised for that, for being strong and powering through. And I thought that that's what made me lovable. So I, I identified as a, as a strong woman and didn't want anybody to see me sweat. And when I think about um, the work you did, like with Brene Brown and, and, and studying that kind of work, did you have to redefine what strength meant in order to move forward? Completely, totally and completely. Yeah. So I think that might have been why I was so drawn to her work in the first place. I actually started following her, I do think this was serendipitous, back in 2009 when she wrote her first book, which not very many people have read. <laughs> right. That, right. That's she early Brene. <laughs> yeah, she had a read-along and it was like when she was writing on her blog a lot. Right. She would reply to everyone's comments and I had just had my second child and I would go on these walks and this was even before podcasts were really big and it was like these downloadable um, audios. And I was always drawn to her work about, I always knew I wanted to tell the truth. Mm -hmm. And even as a child, and it wasn't something that was fostered in my family. So I felt like I was kind of making up for lost time. (laughs) 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 Like, blah, here's everything. Right, right. Um, that, so, so that, I, I love that. I, I, I knew I wanted to tell the truth, you know, like that seems so simple and so elemental and of course, right. But, but a lot of us, we spend our lives kind of masking, hiding from, uh, working our way around our fundamental truth, maybe thinking, eh, maybe it's not good enough or maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe, so I've got to present something else to the world, you know, um, 
was that something you had to recognize is like was was good enough part part of the um the dialogue you had to have either internally or externally oh not at all like i totally always knew i was good enough <laughs> <laughs> I'm being sarcastic. That's good though. Yes. I like it. <laughs> I struggled with feeling good enough. And this was not something I was conscious of, which I don't think that's the case for very, very many people. Mm-hmm. But my feelings of not good enough manifested as perfectionism, as for a little while it was it was people pleasing, definitely a people pleaser with with men, not so much with women. Yeah. Um, and yes, perfectionism, people um, people pleasing, and just Proving and overachieving, I think, were big ones for me too. The feeling of not good enough and a little bit of imposter complex thrown in just for fun. And yeah. yeah, that's what it all looked like in my life. So so once you go through your process, Andrea, and, and you um, not not just heal, but you kind of find your voice and your truth, um, how, how do you decide like, um, okay, I'm solid enough in this that I'm going to become a life coach. Like I can tell that that's something you wanted to do for quite some time. And I'm going to work with other women through whatever path that they need to go through. Because that seems like an enormous amount of confidence to conjure in, in a relatively short period of time. Yeah. And I think it was the whole um, unconscious incompetence a little bit. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I honestly, full transparency, walked into that. So I started my training back in 2007. I was pregnant with my first child. And I, it really was a matter back then of, I want to help other people so that I don't have to look at my own stuff. Oh yeah. I think that's what happens (laughs) to a lot of therapists and social workers. And I quickly realized that that was not going to happen. I, I, there's the saying that says, you know, you can only take your clients as far as you're willing to go in your own life. Right. And I knew I would be doing a disservice to my clients if I didn't tell the truth about my own stuff. And so I, was heavily into my own progression. And in those beginning years, I went a little bit kicking and screaming, to be honest with you. Hmm. But I, I quickly figured it out and, and was was okay with it. And then in 2011 is when I got sober. And then in 2014 was when I went and did the Brene Brown training. And that was intense because it was you know, I, I, I describe it as, I feel like that training kind of shook me upside down and like shook the change out of my pockets. No <laughs> pun intended. That was like shoved in my pockets that I, I like the last things I didn't want to look at. And a lot of it was unconscious stuff that I didn't realize was still affecting me today. You know, things that had happened to me in my early twenties that I hadn't dealt with that I had just poo pooed it or, you know, like, Oh, it's been so long. It's fine now. And it wasn't fine. And it was still sort of manifesting. So it's been a journey and I don't think it's over. Right, right. This, this consciousness raising stuff, this is hard work, isn't it? I mean, yes. you know, I'm picturing like somebody listening to you right now might be thinking, I don't know if I've got the juice. I don't know if I've got the energy to do what Andrea's done. Um, do you have clients who feel that way? I mean, as you tell your story or they get into theirs, do you ever have people say, I, I think I'm. I think I'm. I'm cooked. I don't think I, I've got the energy to make it through the process you've gone through. I think the people that come to work with me, like the people that are ready to plunk down their emotional energy and their time and their money to do work with me, are at a place where they are ready to do the work. And they they might have those voices, but they have pushed past them. Right. And I always ask people, like, what's the alternative? You know that I just felt like. I was at the end of my rope. Like I had tied a knot and was hanging on and 
to me to say that that I don't have I don't have it in me. I think that's an excuse that your inner critic is telling you because you don't want to look at the hard stuff in your life. I just think you have to get to a point where you're where you're really ready to take action. Because for a long time, I, again, like I think I liked the idea of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it I, sounds I like do it. have a lot of people that follow me that are there, and I think <laughs> that you have to be there for a while. But when you're ready, you're ready. Yeah, I get it. So how did you? Uh, you know, th- this might seem, um, given your story, like an obvious question, but but I'll ask it anyway. You decided very uh, specifically that you were going to do your work with women. Right, mm-hmm. self improvement for women. Um, you know, your story feels like oh, well, that almost um, elegantly leads you right there. Was it was it as easy as that, or did you have to think that through a little bit? Do you mean specifically working with women? Yeah. Um, no, candidly, I had a couple of not so great experiences with men who. Yeah. I don't think that they were really interested in life coaching. I think they were interested in something more with me. Got it. Got it. Right. Wow. So I quickly said, I don't even want to deal with that. Um, I know that there's a lot of great men out there who would probably really like just the life coaching version of it. But I, I decided it was just a distraction for me and was just not, not going to work out for me. So that's how I came. And I, and I was really good at working with women. I, I seemed to, you know, attract a lot of women that were just like me who might have had different circumstances in their story, but somewhere along the line had had the emotional shit kicked out of them or were at a place where their behaviors that they were doing, their coping mechanisms were just not working for them anymore. So they were ready for change. Right. And, and I can imagine like, you know, this, this podcast itself is a little instructive in that, you know, like dig for your truth and speak it. You know, I kind of love the, the name of this podcast is undo anxiety. And part of what I want people to be able to do is kind of tell their story because I think part of the anxiety we suffer is we think we're the only ones. We're the only, I'm the only one suffering this thing. And, you know, and, and once we hear and Andrea say, you know, like, this is what I went through. I think there's some people who can like breathe and say, oh my God, I'm not alone here. You know, like somebody else has, has made it through this whole thing and is intact. Um, and so first of all, I appreciate you telling this story, but you know, like um, the, the people you work with, um, are, first of all, are you as open as you are right now with the people you work with? Oh Yeah. Even mm-hmm. even more so sometimes if there's something a specific part of my personal life that I don't feel comfortable, like if it's with my children and or, or things like that that I don't feel comfortable with sharing on the podcast, yeah. I, I will share with a client who's going through something similar. Absolutely. Um, just just as an aside here, I'm I'm a therapist and a life coach, so I was trained in life coaching about the same time you were about ten years or so ago is when I started that training. And I loved that training so much. I think I learned more there than I ever did in 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 uh, therapy for school school for therapy rather. Um, but um, you know, one thing we're taught as therapists is not to do a lot of self disclosure. I know, and I, mm-hmm. I find that to be so counterproductive in a way because. Well, you think it like I? I mean, I've had therapists for pretty much ever, and I, especially the one I had for a long time, starting around the age of eighteen. And I started to put her on a pedestal because uh-huh. I, you know, she was so wise and would help me so much. And I made up a story that like, she must have a perfect life. In fact, I told her that one time and she started <laughs> laughing and I, I said, will you please tell me just one thing about your life that isn't great? And she told me about this spat that she had with her husband, which, and it did end up having like a happy ending that turned out kind of funny. So I know that she sort of handpicked that story, right. but I didn't want to be that way. I didn't want to have my clients put me on a pedestal because 
there because there's a disconnect and yep. I didn't like that at all. I, I agree completely. And, and I can imagine that you are a great life coach just because you're, you're open and you're willing to share and you've been there, you, you know, and, and that's, an, I think a really important human element of doing this kind of work. So, you know, I really honor how open you are with your story. Um, Thank you. So yep. what, so what do you see? So, so with the women that you work with and, and, and what you know about women in general and, what, and your story, you know, um, you talk about these kind of like self-destructive behaviors that get, that get people feeling like shit. What, what, what do people do? You know, what, 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 what are the primary habits that put them in that spot? I think that, do you mean like to put them in the spot in the first place yeah. or to get them out? Yeah, uh, yeah, right. How, how, how do they get to feeling like shit in the first place and then how okay. do they get out, right? Yeah, two very important questions, yeah. right? Why, yeah. I think in the first place, it's, it's these are the things that we learn growing up. And I, I also make it very clear in the introduction of the book that this is not a book about, you know, here are the 14 things you're doing wrong and you need to fix them and stop doing them. Mm -hmm. This is about normalizing the behaviors. I'm very candid and talk about, you know, I still do most of these mm -hmm. and it's, it's what we all do. And I joke that, you know, sometimes it's like on people's to-do lists, you know, like, okay, today I'm going to wake up and you know, my inner critic is going to talk and then I'm going to go right. <laughs> to work and perfectionism <laughs> and overachieving and come home and numb out. And it's, <laughs> it's really about knowing that you're doing it very quickly. That's what I want the win to be. And I, again, it goes back to that, what I was talking about before. We do these things because we think that they are protecting us. Nobody likes to be criticized or rejected or fall into shame spirals we so we try to perfect and prove and please and you know overachieve and perform and control and 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 that's where they all are born from mm -hmm. and the solution there's a lot of tools in the book but the 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 two main solutions that i talk the most about are knowing what your values are and what they look like it's twofold as well as learning how to share your struggles with someone you trust. And I call that person your compassionate witness. Oh, I love that. I love that. Um, is it, is it tough for people to find their compassionate witness? You know, I'm just thinking about your story and how, you know, I'm just thinking and, and trust, um, and how important that must be. Uh, is it tough yeah. for some people to find that person? Yes and no. And I think for some people who are so used to keeping their pain kind of close to their chest, mm -hmm or who have, and this is really common, who have been betrayed in the past, you know, myself included, like, hello, I, I think like, everybody has abandonment issues. Yes. You don't, I don't think that you can go through life completely unscathed and, and have no trust issues at all. And sometimes, unfortunately, this happens in our friendships. And I, I know that, you know, we get to a certain point where we're like, this is not even worth it. Like, forget it. These people just don't show up for me. And what's interesting is like, we keep trying to get the people who continuously don't show up for us to, to show up for us. And, and a lot of times it might be like our parents or our best friend from childhood or a sibling and, and it just doesn't work out. And so I think that it's a matter of, of really looking at what your core beliefs are of right. around friendships. Um, you know, some people say like other people just aren't to be trusted. Mm -hmm. I was that way. <laughs> that right, right. You just can't <laughs> share your heart with someone. They will either walk away from you or hold it against you or something like that. And so mm -hmm. when I work with women, 
what I do is, and it's one of the very first sessions that we do is we talk about who the key players are in their life. And the majority of them have at least one and, and it, the, the health of that relationship varies greatly. So I do have some women who they either only touch base with that person every once in a while, or, you know, they, they're very selective about what they share. So it's a matter of nurturing that relationship. And I ask them to be very proactive about it. I give them assignments around it and I, I, not all, it doesn't always work out, you know, <laughs> like, right, I'm I give sure. a couple examples of that, of how it might not work out. And that's where you learn resiliency, and that's something I, I teach too. So it can be um, it can be tricky. I think yeah. it's a short answer for that. Do you find that the compa- compassionate witness for women is typically a woman? Like I'm just thinking about the the, the different nature that I see um, in relationships between women and relationships between men, and I think we men are not great at nurturing kind of deep and meaningful relationships with one another. It's something I think um, women are far better at and, and it comes to them, it comes to you <laughs> far, far easier somehow. Um, and, and maybe that's a vulnerability issue, an openness issue, um, a willingness to be there. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I do. I, I think that, yes, I think I've had a couple of, well, I've had several clients whose compassionate witness is their male partner. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, for the, for the most part it is, is a female or sometimes it's both. It's their, it's their male partner and a female friend. And, and yeah, you're right for men. I think that, I think that their compassionate witnesses, like the conversation looks a little bit different as it would for women. Right. I don't know where I read this and it very well could have been in like popular science or psychology today or something that, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so take it with a grain of salt. I, but I, I do, I hope that this is, is true. Cause it's so fascinating. Yeah. I'm fascinated with brain science, but I read somewhere that, um, men are perfectly capable of, of being as articulate about their feelings as women. They feel the same things, but the synapses between the two hemispheres of the brain look very different. So women have Um, God, it was something like twice as many synapses that connect the hemispheres. Mm -hmm. So we feel on one side of the brain and articulate it on the other side of the brain. So women are, that's why we can talk about our feelings so readily and quickly and access feelings easier. And for men, it's just, it's harder for them to articulate it and have conversations around it and process feelings of other people and et cetera. So yeah. I think it lets men off the hook a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And yet, and yet I like your point that men are capable of this. Yes. Yes. And I think it's it's a matter of practicing it yeah. and having a partner who's patient. When That's a big I, part of it. When, when I work with women, the, the thing probably that jumps out, the, the, the theme I see most frequently that I think is the most difficult to circumvent is this kind of pervasive feeling of shame that, that is um, not necessarily directed at any event or or time in mm-hmm. in life, it's it, it's kind of um, colors the lens through which they look at themselves and their their entire lives, and it's so difficult to kind of get out from underneath that. Um, have, it, it, does that mirror your experience at all? Yes. The way I describe it is what I hear women say is, I mean, I resonate with you know Brene Brown's books, and I like what you're saying, but I don't walk around feeling ashamed, and I can't pinpoint something big and specific that happened in my life that was shameful. Yes, that's, I think, the case for the majority of us. So <laughs> right. I describe it as this. So we all know what shame feels like. You know, it's that feeling of 
of being other than I give a couple of examples in in the book of my own experiences in middle school of, of having felt it of either someone shaming me or feeling shame about something that I did. And, and so we grow up and we know what that is and what it feels like. So the behaviors that we participate in, we are doing so in an effort to avoid shame. Right. So we are actively allowing shame to control our life when we are participating in people pleasing. And because I'll give you an example, like if you say, for instance, someone asks you to, um, to stay an extra work over the weekend, or right. if you're a PTA mom, you know, they, they ask you to make, um, three dozen cupcakes for tomorrow morning and it's, you know, six o'clock the night before. And you want to say no, you know, like, no, right. this doesn't work for me. Right. But you are afraid of someone judging you, of them talking badly about you, of being, you know, basically like pushed out of this, this community from a very fundamental level. I think that's why we get scared. It's not something we consciously think, but right. we are afraid of rejection. So we say yes. What we are running from is shame, really, is what it is. <laughs> so it's, yes. it's about, you know, I don't expect people to walk around, like, being able to pinpoint all of these, like, possible shame storms. But it is really, if, if you don't know what your triggers are, and if you don't know, if you aren't aware of that, then you are letting shame in the driver's seat of your life. Yes. Okay. I love that. That's a really good point. So, um I, I have a question now that I, I was going to let you go, but, but I can't, I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't ask you what you thought of this moment right now in history for women. You know, like um, the, in, the, in the past few months, there have been um, uh, so many women coming forward um, and, and I think empowering themselves a bit by talking about um, some of the sexual abuse and sexual assault they've suffered, the hashtag Me Too movement. Um, mm -hmm. do, do you think this changes the game um, at all for some of the inner you know, dialogues that, that, that women play out? Do you think this, or, over time anyway? Absolutely, a thousand percent, yes. And, I'm, and I appreciate you, you bringing that up. Mm -hmm. And I, of course, when I wrote this book, it it hadn't surfaced quite yet. Mm -hmm. I was, you know, I finished the book in, in 2016. And what I, let me give you an example. So I was in, I'm in a Facebook group with a lot of other online entrepreneurs and, and a few of the men in there were asking us about it and being very candid and saying, Hey, I'm seeing this come up. Um, and just kind of starting a conversation about it. And right. basically they were saying, I have been tone deaf to this my whole life. Mm -hmm. And I'm surprised that I'm seeing so many people on Facebook telling their stories. Or one of them was saying, you know, I had a conversation with my wife about it and she told me things that she had never told me before. And so we're talking about it. And in this conversation, I can't remember specifically what he had asked. And I think it was the conversation around why haven't, why do, why am I just, the man was saying, you know, I'm 40 years old. Why am I just hearing about this now? And right. I said, we have been socialized as women to not say anything. You know, it's like, it's how we have learned how to, to navigate the world. And we have, and I'm, and I need to speak personally for myself. Please. I have learned to shove my anger down because it is, um, you know, it was socially unacceptable for me to speak out about it or to mm -hmm. get angry about it or to point fingers and, and to tell the truth, really. Mm -hmm. So I think my point is, is that, that um, and what I was saying in that conversation was I have learned to, I have, I've been socialized to be different. 
um, to make other people comfortable. Mm -hmm. And I think that that really is the theme of it. I think for so many women and men too, but I think specifically for women, we have learned to, it is, that is our job to make other people comfortable, specifically men. And this book is really like shining the light on the behaviors that are exacerbating that perfectionism, people pleasing, imposter syndrome, overachieving, being strong, all of that. And I, and I'm, I'm glad that this book is coming out now because I think women need it more than ever. Oh my gosh. I mean, it, it's kind of almost like the law of attraction working in, uh, in a way you never could have predicted, right? Because it seems like for a book that you finished a year ago, um, the timing couldn't be better. Thank you for that. Yeah. yeah. I, I finished it. <clears throat> to be honest, I finished it right after the election. So it was, I knew that times were changing mm -hmm. and I, but yeah, again, the majority of it was written and the idea was all before that. So yeah, who knows? Right. Who knows? Uh, well, I, and, and, I'm, and I'm hopeful in the same way that, that, that you are. Um, I, I not only hope that the, it changes that, um, that pleasing element, um, that, that, that so many women carry, um, uh, and I, I hope that there is a bit of a call to arms for my gender to, you know, become more vulnerable and do some of that Brene Brown work, some of that Andrea Owen work and, 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 um, really kind of pay attention to our own feelings and, and shift that inner dialogue about what strength really means and what power really means and all of that. So, um, so I'm, I'm excited for your book to come out now too. Um, you. and, and your book is not yet released, right? January 2nd is its actual birthday. So what uh -huh. that means is it'll be available in bookstores then. And, but it's, it's very much available for pre-order and pre-order sales matter very much to us. So I, I humbly ask that if, if, if you resonate with me and you want to buy a copy of the book, please pre-order it. And I'm also offering a free book club for anyone that that orders early on where I'm taking people through the book because I don't want this to be just a book that people buy and read. And they're like, well, that sounds good. You know, right, right, right. Absolutely. <laughs> and don't actually do the work. So I'm willing to put in extra effort for free for people to, to help guide them. So they can find that all at my website. And, and, uh, and if you don't mind, tell us, tell us uh, where your website is and what else we need to know about you. That particular for them to find that information is at your slash H-T-S-F-L-S, and that's the acronym for the book, How to Stop Feeling Like Shit. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there's a button in there to pre-order the book as well as claim your bonuses. There's drawings and, and fun stuff I'm giving away too, along with that, that free book club. So that's all over on that page. Outstanding. Andrea, thank you so much for joining me here. Um, this has been um, a, a, an astonishingly great hour, and, and, um, and, and I hope it's been, uh, it's been useful for you as well. <laughs> I thank you so much. You were such, I mean, it really makes a difference when someone's a great interviewer. So I think it's a craft that you have definitely done very well at. Thank you so much. I have, I have too so enjoyed it. Well, folks, that is the fascinating Andrea Owen, author of the upcoming How to Stop Feeling Like Shit. Go to her website, order that book now. Um, and uh, this is the Undo Anxiety Podcast. And I'm Dr. John Duffy. You can find us on uh, Podbean, Stitcher, and WGN+. Plus. If you have any questions or comments, you can write me at John G. Duffy at drjohnduffy.com. On behalf of Andrea and myself, I will talk to you next time. Have a great day. Bye-bye.